Grandpa. Welcome to this week's episode where we have Jeff Gowen, the author of PPG Bible, with us today. He has a website, it's footflyer.com, and on footflyer.com, he actually has a bunch of DVDs. One of the DVDs that I got was uh, Airspace, Mastering the Airspace. Uh, there are a ton of different DVDs, plus he has the latest book out, which is number five, uh, edition five. Now, edition six is going to be coming out sometime this year. We'll ask him about that here in just a moment. Let's go ahead and get Jeff on the phone and get this going. <laughs> going, like Jeff going. I love it. So welcome, Jeff, to the show. How are you doing, man? Greetings. I'm doing very well, flying a computer keyboard. Oh, that that's always fun. I, I was a computer engineer for 30 years, so I kind of understand what you're what you're saying. But uh, talking before the show, some of the stuff that you were saying was was way above my head, man. Hey, don't worry, it's way above my head too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast here. This is the PPG Grandpa Paramotor Podcast. We had some really good guests here on the uh, in the past, but we have uh, Jeff Gowen, and if you don't know, he is the author of the PPG Bible. Um, I put out some feelers out the last couple of days since you said that you would be on my podcast, and I asked the questions, if you could ask Jeff anything, what would you ask him? So I got a couple pages here that I'm going to ask you um, from our viewers out there. Are you ready for some? You ready for some really difficult ones? Uh, absolutely. And, and by the way, the square root of two, I only know it out to eight decimal places. Okay, I know pi up to three point that. Yeah, pi three point one four one five. That's as far as I go. Yeah, that that sounds good. All right, here's the most difficult question. We're going to do this one first. Jeff, what is your favorite color? Uh, you know, it depends on context, but I would say sunrise orange. Ooh, ooh! I like that. I like that a lot. That's really awesome. But on a car, it's different, and on a paramotor, it's different. Oh, so uh, what kind of wing colors do you like? Wing colors, white, reddish, and gray, and uh, paramotor, a darkish metallic red. Okay, I, I hope that answers their question. What's your favorite color? I tried to, you know, get, get as much uh, information as possible. Um, <laughs> but uh, we put this out on YouTube, Facebook, Reddit, and there's a, a server on Discord. So we're going to try to get through this probably within an hour. Um, is, that, is that about as long as you got for me, about an hour? Sure. All right, that's awesome. All right, uh, the first one is, what comms or radios should I get after training? There are so many choices that I don't have a favorite. I use Yezu 2 meter, but you have to have a ham license for that. And I've seen some great options. For example, the helmet Bluetooth connections. Those are great. So problem is that there's so many choices that it's difficult to and they, they're all pretty good uh one criteria is i would say look at what the people around you are using and go with that i like they that have, yeah they each have advantages and disadvantages 
the Bluetooth option doesn't have much range, but if it goes through a cell phone, that may be a better plan. Mm -hmm. Cell phones have some of their own limits. You may not legally be supposed to do it. Uh, I'm not an expert on that. But, yeah, I'd, I'd look at what the people around you are using. Go with that. That, that, sound, that sounds very good. I, I, I wouldn't know how else to answer that. Um, yeah. for, for safety, would it be wise to have a flying buddy? Safety always comes in degrees. And a flying buddy helps immensely in certain situations. If you're out in terrain where you might struggle to get back or where you might fly over a river, and the bridge is 20 miles away sure would be nice to have someone nearby that could come fetch your sorry broken you know what and uh the other thing to remember though is when you're flying with a buddy the chances of a midair just skyrocketed Ah, didn't even think about that yeah it only takes one and in fact my observation is that probably because we tend to fly only with one other person more of the midairs have happened when you're flying with only one other person. Interesting. I I, I didn't even know about that. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, since we're talking about midair, what kind of wing? This is coming from me. What kind of wing would be the best wing to have in case there is like a collapse or something like that? And when should you get a reserve? I would say a reserve improves your odds of survival anytime you're high enough for it to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it goes in degrees. If you're going to be doing steep maneuvering at either a high enough altitude or with other pilots, it improves your odds. Mm-hmm. So just think of it as, yeah, this is another tool. How about, how about as far as like wings, like the um, A or B rated wings? Um, there's a, there's another question that I'm going to be talking a little bit more in depth. It's it's from Doug, but uh, this is kind of from me right here because, you know, when I first started, I was thinking, you know, I'm I'm not going to be like a Tucker guy, you know, getting down low and and skimming my feet and doing foot drags and barrel rolls and all this stuff. I want to just get up and and enjoy myself and feel safe up there. Um, I know that A wings are kind of slow and they're pretty stable, but is there any like good B wings that you could get that are stable enough to uh, feel very confident, especially after like your first, you know, um, 10 flights, maybe 30 hours? Yeah, well, I'm not going to give specific wing recommendations only because I haven't flown enough of the newest models. And even if I did, my observation on the more that I fly, at least certified wings, is that the differences are actually pretty small. If you got into a Ford and drove it around a little bit, you got into the same class of Chevrolet or any other car, it drives pretty much the same, and the differences are relatively minor. So it comes down to personal taste on handling. I, I've had good luck with ozone, but I've had good luck with a lot of them. I mean, when I, I go to a fly-in and I test fly these wings, it's like, yeah, that's nice. For one thing, they're usually new. New always helps. Um, so, yeah, an A-wing, if you're training, you need to be on an A-wing. Uh, the chances of dying on an A-wing are much less because it's so much more forgiving of ham-fistedness. Uh, I started testing A-wings 
uh, I gained interest after I noticed how training seems to be one of the top three causes of fatal accidents or phases of fatal accidents. Uh, and I wanted to make sure that not only is it an A-wing, but the brakes are tied according to the manufacturer, and it's of the appropriate size. Size is important because if you have too small of a wing, you're flying heavy, uh, you can stall or spin it. If you're flying in the prescribed size, there's a reasonable chance that even if you were to reach down into your seat and forget to let go of the brakes, it's not the death sentence. So A-wings for training. But your question regarded, I've got 30 flights, I want to move on. And there are quite a few B-wings, I would say. I don't know that I've met one that I really don't like. There's some that maybe I don't like the handling on as much. So really, your best bet is to go try it, talk to some respected people, not necessarily sellers, although sellers have good insights. But there's just too many choices to have really have favorites because the ones that I try generally, I like. Exactly. I, I, I agree with you. Now, I have a Roadster 3. It has the tip steering. It's rated B or intermediate, beginner intermediate. And this is what I've heard, and I really want your take on this. If I keep the trims in and I use the brakes and I don't use the tip steering because – and. Um, I believe, this is what I've heard, that the ratings, if this did not, if my Roadster 3 did not have tip steering and the trims did not go past neutral, it would be considered an A-wing. However, since I'm able to uh, pull out further than neutral and use tip steering, it cannot be considered an A-wing, therefore it's a B-wing. So if I keep the uh, trims all the way in and don't use the tip steering, am I flying an A-wing? Uh, that question belongs to an expert on that wing. So there's a good case for going to someone who is really knowledgeable about that wing, and I'm not that guy. Because it may, there are a lot of these wings where if they're highly reflexed, they're probably not certified with the trims out. That's kind of common. Okay. So if you're flying a... Uh, a wing with a lot of speed range in the trims, there's a good chance it's reflex. There's a good chance it's not certified when, when the trims are out. You want to be really careful about using speed bar or flying aggressively. Okay. All right. That sounds good. Um, here's, a, here's one for you. What aspect of flying keeps you motivated to continue to fly paramotors? People who really enjoy paramotor flying probably enjoy a number of different elements. I'm one of these who I love, and on every flight at some point, I am dragging my foot through something. At some point, I am doing a full power turn around something. Um, yeah, I live on an airport, so I just love the ability to run into the air, number one, to go up to see things from 500 feet or 1,000 feet, uh, and then to come down and plant both feet on the two yellow lines of a curvy road. Wow. Uh, yeah, those kinds of things uh, I can't do in anything else. I certainly can't do legally. And we have immense freedom on this craft and in this country anyway 
to do things like that fully legally. Uh, so that is a big part of what keeps me flying. I mean, I've gone through phases too, where, for example, I competed. I enjoyed seeing how far I could take it. Um, and when you, and when you say and when you say competed, are you talking about like an Icarus, or are you talking about like the uh, big cones that you fly around? I've not done Icarus. That's not my preferred kind of competition. It, it's really cool. I mean, I, I, my hat's off to those guys or to the guys that fly in camp. Uh, I don't do cold. <laughs> I want a thermostat, but that's awesome. Uh, so my kind of competition is precision. Anything that involves precision, whether it is pylon racing, spot landings, dropping balls, picking up cones, um, flying and dropping a ribbon, then recapturing it in the shortest time. Anything that involves precision, I really get a kick out of trying. Landing and stopping on something while kiting the wing overhead. Uh, all of those things have been intriguing and kept my interest. Uh, but I stopped. My last competition was 2014. Doesn't mean I'll never do one, but I'm um, just not actively pursuing it. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I would like to eventually get into all that precision. I only have like 30 hours under my belt, and I um, realized that just recently have I actually played with the tip stirring and played with trims a little bit. I'm kind of on the, kind of up in the air, pardon the pun, about the speed bar thing because, you know, it gets out of that, it gets into that reflex and it's not as stable. I'm kind of. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a good thing to be nervous about because. I know of uh, three accidents that I strongly suspect were, uh, they were fatal, and they were contributed to by how the speed bar was used. Oh, that's, that's awful. I, I hate when I hear fatalities in our sport. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with going up to a couple hundred feet and cruising around and seeing where we live from that unique perspective. And being able to put yourself in a 3D location, that's awesome. If you do that kind of flying, you will likely have a long career. And speed so, and speed bar and stuff like that is with altitude. You have enough altitude. You can pretty much practice, you know, all of your acro and speed bar with uh, without too much issue, I suppose, because you can always throw a reserve. Well, if you do that, if you take that tact, you're now taking the safety of the reserve and using it up by increasing your likelihood of needing it. Uh, remember that a reserve ride is going to put you somewhere you didn't plan on. And that could be in water or power lines or a tree. So uh, my recommendation is if you want to do acro, your best bet is to find a good coach and do it over water. Okay, that actually is another let me see if i can see it now um I, that's actually another question is what siv courses would you recommend uh the reason why he said that he's asking is because it's really hard to find you know accurate information on instructors and siv instructors and coaches where would you go to find an siv course and instructor how, how, how would you recommend that to someone that's a tough call for two, two reasons. One is that information that I, I may have heard, which is uh, sometimes, uh, it's pretty much always secondhand or thirdhand, it's 
old, so I may have heard it from last year. So a guy who is struggling with SIV uh, may have figured some things out by now. But what I would recommend is going with someone who your peers, fellow pilots, have gone to and had good results. If you can find a uh, an SIV coach who recommends other SIV coaches, that's a really good sign. Wow. So, so like I know that Chris Santa Croce has an excellent reputation. If you can't do it out there, ask him. Hey, listen, I'm uh, I'm going to do this. I can't come to Salt Lake in this time. Um, do you have anyone you'd recommend? In instead so if you can get that kind of recommendation that's the most valuable the next most valuable recommendation comes from pilots who have been there um, another one would be just to observe do they have accidents if there there are a number of accidents in the operation eh, I'd be skeptical gotcha. all right um, here's another question that says what do you want to see in legislation in the next 10 years? And that goes with a lot of different um, questions that I've had um, over and over. It's like, you know, the, the, uh, the drone thing has been regulated to the point that it's not even fun to, to go first-person view because, you know, you're not able, because of the FAA, able to go away from line of sight um so a lot of people are getting away from the drones and they're actually going to ppg and now with the saturation with ppg what do you think the faa and legislation is going to happen in the next 10 years i mean of course this is all speculation i'm sure i'm sure oh yeah yeah uh and the main answer i would say about what legislation is none You know, we, as best I can tell, we have the most freedom of any country on the planet to do this legally. It is ours to lose. So, by God, let's not lose it. Let's not piss people off. I mean, we've all watched sites disappear and laws appear because somebody pushed it. Uh, I've heard this. uh, There's no law telling me I can't do this. This, by the way, was in New Smyrna Beach. That was the last year we flew in New Smyrna Beach because that cop, went along with probably some others, said, this is what's going on down here. This is what this guy did. And sure enough, they passed the law. So uh, we all know about the Oregon coast and what happened there where it was lost because of some pilots who said, well, you can't tell me I can't. Uh, well, in fact, they can. There's a lot more of them than there are of us. Right, and right now, we are operating within the law so that best thing we can do is be responsible and not annoy people um like for example you can do those foot drags down the center line of the road that's incredible you're legally allowed to do it don't play chicken (laughs) no kidding right yeah don't do it on a busy road make sure it's empty make sure there's no people around that are likely to to get annoyed you know that kind of thing we all get we'll get grief from some people who just don't like to see you have fun. Um, but so my hope for legislation is that nothing happened. Uh, I would love to see us voluntarily start using ADSB. That's a, an electronic device that tells other aircraft where you are. Yeah, I saw that. Isn't that uh, mandatory in like all the uh, um, um, airplanes as of 2020 yes. now? Yes, it is now mandatory. I've got it, and I have a couple aircraft, and I've got it in both. I've had it. 
Uh, it points out where other traffic is to me. That's extremely valuable. I've been flying. I've got a uh, Beechcraft Bonanza, little four-place uh, piston airplane. And I've been flying and uh, have come across paramotor pilots. They weren't close. There was no risk or anything. But it dawned on me that, well, yeah, you know, we're up there sharing the same space. Wouldn't it be nice if I could see them? So just one thing. I don't want to see a rule that requires it. But I think the it, for those people that are going to be flying in busy airspace, uh, if there's a way to do it, and I would look at the uh, ADSB solutions that are used on drones, uh, if there's a way to do it, and I've been wanting to do it myself, uh, but I just haven't gotten around to it yet. You know, I, I rarely ever go high enough that I'm a factor, but still, I'd like to have it. Um, is there any portable ones that you could, um, you know, just broadcast, be the transmitter um, for uh, with, with the paramotor? Yeah, it's UAVionics. I don't know that I would tell them if, if I do it, it's going to be their unit. Uh, UAVionics makes one for drones. Uh, you're just buying it for your drone. Okay, and then just, what, you just put it in your... You've got to have a 12-volt source. Oh, okay. And uh, I haven't built this thing yet. I want to build one eventually, but I've, I've got some other projects going. And uh, I just figured I'd put it in my harness. That's good, because you can just use a little battery pack or something, right? Yeah, and I've had people tell me, well, you know, you can't legally do that. Well, you know, there is actually a function in there. I talked to one person who uh, was a developer of it, and there is a selection for ultralight if you could get to it. I don't think the UAVionics allows you to select that, but as best I can tell, it's legal to do, just like it's legal to put it in your drone. See, that, that'd be pretty good, because if it's drone-worthy, then obviously it's uh, worthy enough, and since all the airplanes now you know, have that, um, they'll be able to see us no matter what we're doing. I was flying out with my friends yesterday over at the uh, Pinnacle Mountain here in Little Rock, and twice I saw airplanes um, at our level, and we weren't but a thousand or fifteen hundred feet up. Oh yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I like flying around. If I've got landing areas, I like flying around down that low, just you know, because it's more fun to to see it generally. I definitely have to look into that. Is that something that you want to put in your next book? Well, I wouldn't want to put it in there until that probably won't be in there, only because I don't know that I'll be able to test it. Ah, gotcha. It wouldn't be a bad idea to include it, uh, but, yeah, I'd want to test it, make sure it's legal and so forth. And and also regarding this idea of legislation, they don't want to regulate ultralights. Uh, they see drones a lot differently. Drones are accessible to a lot more people. They don't require skill. They're a lot faster. And... In many regards, they feel like little cruise missiles, where a paramotor, eh, he's slow, he's vulnerable, there's less need to regulate them. Gotcha. I always wondered why why there's such a heavy regulations on UAVs and uh, not the PPGs. It's because you don't need much skill, you are not risking your own body, uh, and you can get to places very quickly uh, without being, for the most part, without being seen easily. 
So uh, it doesn't take much of a security imagination to think of how that could go bad. Yeah. See, that makes sense now, too. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know, the more I talk with people, the more I, you know, I, I realize things that, of course, are right there in front of me, which is one of the reasons why I want to do this podcast in the first place is to help yeah. a lot of, you know, newbies that are, you know, newbie pilots that have these basic questions that no one's talking about because most of the podcast or people out there doing videos have been doing this for, you know, 100 hours and they're doing all these amazing things, including SIV and us. You know, beginner pilots are like, well, uh, what's an A-line? You know what I mean? So Right, yeah. Um, oh, that's good. Yeah. Anyway, uh, here's another one is uh, about your next book. Um, any tips, tricks, warnings that you're going to be adding to your next PPG Bible? And when is the next one going to come out? And will there be a Kindle or an e-version? Yeah, so we're... Working on edition six, it's largely done. However, um, I'm improving chapter two quite a bit. I'm going to make things bigger and more clear and add a couple pages uh, and take, I, I've already removed two pages from um, the accessories section because there was some replication in there. And I've improved the airspace section. I've had three revisions where I've given the first four pages of that to somebody to read. Somebody who says, yeah, I'm not very good on airspace, airspace. And then I go, have them read those first four pages. There's some more illustrations to make it more clear, uh, to learn it how we need to know it. And then I ask them questions. I give them a test. I tell them, I'm not testing you. I'm testing me and the chapter. So I've gone through and improved it in those three iterations and so i think the airspace chapter will be quite a bit better speaking about airspace uh, i got your dvd and that has cleared up every question i've ever had about airspace yeah awesome well and i'm trying to do a little bit of that a little bit more with that where i i concentrate on understand g and e airspace if you understand G&E airspace and how the chart delineates them and what it means, which is all pretty simple, uh, it goes a long way to understanding how to read the charts and what matters to us. So the longer form of that video allowed me to obviously do it very graphically for one thing uh, with 3D motions and so forth, but it also allowed me to explore a little bit of why it makes sense. You know, why the speed limit rules, things like that. I, I mentioned that in the book, but I can't, I don't have the space to dedicate to that much detail. Now, if someone's listening to this and like, what, the, what is, what, there's a DVD about airspace. Now, now how would they go about um, getting the, your DVDs? And I know that you have more than one DVD out there, plus your book. Um, how would we get to your website and how would we be able to uh, contact you if we need you in the future? Available now on footflyer.com is not only the Power Paragliding Bible, but the Master PPG series. And if you're going to be flying in the air, you're in airspace, you need to know about airspace. Airspace and Law for Ultralight is your product. Okay, how was that? Is that, that was amazing, that like, dude. It didn't sound like a commercial, did it? It sounded like a commercial, but it was perfect commercial. <laughs> so yeah, footflyer.com, and uh, there's... 
Uh, also, the uh, instructor book for anybody who is aspiring to be an instructor. It is intended for those who have already gotten, gone through the PPG-3 training. So it's definitely not, you know, something you get when you're getting into the sport. Okay, awesome. Um, this oh, and another thing you mentioned, uh, is it going to be in uh, Kindle? It won't be in Kindle, but it will be an ebook. Uh, and the new one, we have made the biggest jump we've ever made in edition six because we've changed our publishing software, which was Quark. And now it's InDesign and it is being made from the ground up to have uh, cross chapter links and be an ebook. So it will definitely be available as an ebook as well. That's awesome. Um, about what time period are, uh, is this going to be popping out here? Sometime in sometime in 2020, it should be by the end of the year. Okay, so yeah. so a Christmas present. There you go. Yeah, it uh, should be. I would say around that time frame. Um, we got. I'm working on this other project, and so the timing is uh, a little tough. But <laughs> that never stops me. Thankfully, before that project got fully going, I was largely done with uh, the reformat. So it's now it's content. It's mostly up to content. Uh, there's always new stuff. I mean, I can't even think of it all, but I go in and I look through it and it's like, okay, yeah, we can improve this, clarify that, make about better illustrations or, oh yeah, there's some new information or yeah, we maybe not need to emphasize this as much. Uh, so I am amazed myself. I think after I, like after I did edition five, there won't be any more new edition. This is it. Interesting. Now, let's just say that somebody's out there and like, wow, I, I can think of a way that, you know, uh, Jeff could change this. Is there a way of uh, getting up with you and uh, maybe giving you their perspective or recommendations? I always appreciate input. The, my uh, agreement with people who give me input is, number one, it's all valuable. I don't care if you've had... Uh, five flights or a thousand flights i'll always look at it um, the other is that i may or may not use it there's only so much room i can only do those things that are uh you know valuable enough that i think that uh other pilots will be able to get here and it makes more sense to put it in the book than to just put it on footflyer the way to contact me is to go to footflyer.com there's a contact page there that's the best way Awesome. Awesome. That's, that's great. Uh, here is a next question. It's from Sean Dorr. If, uh, y'all been out on, uh, the internet at all, Sean Dorr is everywhere and he's going to be taking his classes sometime this summer. And his question is, I assume, you know, um, after going through, you know, uh, instruction. He asks, what advice would you give someone about to take their first solo? Ooh, that is a surprisingly risky time. That first solo flight is really risky. And number one, if you have not been in a simulator with an instructor, I would say running the motor that's tied down safely and uh, who has gotten you to the point where you can respond automatically to commands, uh, number one. Number two, you are good at handling that wing. 
being able to ground handle indicates success in flight. I don't even understand why some of that is true. I understand why uh, there's, it's really obvious why some of it is true. Um, and that's because there's a lag that happens with the control input of our craft. And if you're good at ground handling, you have automatically learned a little bit about that lag and about how the wing handles. So it's not just like something that instructors say, oh, you should be good at ground handling just because. No, I've observed that you're less likely to die if you get to a high level of ground handling before your first few flights. Um, there's some pendular behavior about our craft that is particularly risky, uh, both with the throttle, uh, the fore-aft pendulum, and the left-right pendulum. And if you don't master that as best you can, uh, and another one is a tandem. Get a tandem flight in something before you go solo, preferably something with hand controls and a paraglider. Uh, you know, a, a, a wheel tandem is is okay. A foot launch tandem is better a little bit, but, but really it doesn't matter. A wheel tandem is, as long as you're under a hand-controlled paraglider, uh, is really good. With an instructor that knows what he's doing, where he gives you the controls, he shows you how you get into and how you stop pendular swinging, both left-right and fore-aft, you know, like you throttle up. So uh, those are some things that hopefully you have already done. If you're about to do your first solo, you're thinking, well, it's too late. Well, okay. I'm just telling you my observation. Uh, in 2015, there were two fatalities, both of them at least involved they were both under radio control and they at least involved this type of pendular action those two fatalities are what inspired me to write the instructor book because there are some best practices on instructing that are not always followed being certified does not mean you will follow those practices it means you've demonstrated competency and you've been exposed to those practices but it's still up to the in disciplined instructor to employ them that was a lot of words, but this is an important topic. And another one is be on an A-wing with correctly tied lines and within its advertised weight range. I'm glad you just said weight range. I have heard a lot about people wanting to go heavier than their weight range because it makes it more stable. Can you can you really quickly go over what happens when you go over and under a weight range on a wing, please? It's like adding a lot of weight to a car. It has an effect. Will the car suddenly break with that much weight? No. You could probably put uh, 5,000 pounds onto the car. It'll bottom out the suspension. But until you hit a bump, it'll work. So being heavy on a wing doesn't make it immediately dangerous. Being light on a wing doesn't make it immediately dangerous. Each one affects it in certain predictable ways. If you're heavy on the wing, it will be more responsive to control input. It will be faster in the air. It will take longer to uh, take off. It will climb slower. It will leave you more susceptible to pendular roll oscillations and uh, the controls will respond quicker so two inches of travel will cause more roll rate if you're light on the wing all of those things are backwards 
Uh, oh, and also, if you're heavy on the wing, uh, it is less likely to fold, but it's going to be way uglier if it does fold. Um, if you're light on the wing, uh, it's basically the reverse of all those things. Uh, and in addition, and very significantly, it will collapse easier. It takes less air, less downward flow at the leading edge to cause a collapse. So that carries its own risk. Interesting. I know a lot of people are saying stay at about 75% of the wing. So if it's rated, you know, between 100 and 200, you know, stay at about 175. I'm just giving, you know, a, a number out there. But what do you think about, you know, staying at about 75 or do you think 50% would be better? What, what is What do you think is the best for the wing? You know, I don't have a number for it. And part of the reason for that is that it probably depends on the wing. I don't like to make declarations without data points. I don't have any data points. My observation is that those are good numbers. There's nothing wrong with those numbers. That if you're in the middle of a weight range, that's a good place to be. As you get heavier, there, the characteristics change like I described. Uh, same for lighter. So there's nothing wrong with those. If, if it's a certified wing and you're within the weight range, the middle of it is a good place to be. Well, that, that makes sense. That makes perfect yeah. sense. Thank, thank you for clarifying. And hopefully that will clarify and help some people out there when they, you know, decide to get a wing for the first time or to, you know, upgrade because they're getting heavier or go to a smaller wing because they are losing weight. And um, kudos yeah. to you, losing yeah. weight. For, for a new pilot yeah. who doesn't have a wing and is getting training, there's a big benefit in uh, buying what the instructor is used to because he's used to training on it. So there's a good chance he'll be familiar with its handling characteristic. Ah, so that makes sense. It's not just that he needs the money. It's that he'll be familiar with it. So, you know, the motor, the wing, that's why I – I think there's a lot of value in buying equipment from the instructor if he's familiar with it. Good, good advice. Um, it seems like a majority of the things that we talked about today anyways is ask your instructor. Um, yeah, there's a lot of value to that. If you have a trusted instructor who you trust to give you good advice based on your needs, uh, you know, if an instructor sells only one brand and all of his solutions are that brand, regardless of your your weight or anything else uh you're probably not getting the best advice gotcha. if that brand has a wide wide range of options and weights and so forth you you have a better chance of good advice now since this sport is not regulated and you're not required to go and get instruct in, uh, instruction, you don't need to get instructor. You can pretty much just get something on eBay and, you know, try to get up in the air and YouTube self-train yourself. But let's say that, you know, you're a little bit more on the I, I want to be safer side and get instructor. Where on the internet do you go to find people that are qualified to actually be an instructor to instruct you? Is there a website out there? Well, yeah, USPPA.org is the best source for that because now you can at least get somebody who has met certain minimums. Um, there are other really important considerations, of course, because just because you're USPPA certified, it's, it's like the same thing. It's not required. It's voluntary, just like scuba. 
for anybody who knows anything about scuba diving, they're familiar with PADI and Maui. Those are organizations that certify instructors. And it's the same thing. You go uh, to an instructor, that just means they've met qualifications. They've probably agreed to certain things and hopefully are using the training program. But are they? Nobody's actually necessarily watching. Uh, so you might want to find out. Okay, so he's used for certified. Does he use the syllabus? So find an instructor that is willing to give you a rating if he's and he uses the syllabus. And if an instructor is willing to give you a rating without using the syllabus, report it. That's the only way anybody can find out that someone's abusing that program. Uh, using the syllabus is valuable because it avails the instructor of essentially a checklist. Uh, airlines use checklists for very good reasons. They help avoid accidents. The accident that will happen will be yours. So you want an instructor that avails himself of the best possible program. Won't make him a good instructor, but at least it covers one of the bases. Um, do they emphasize ground handling? You know, you, you need to be uh, like the, um, the ratings require you to be able to kite uh, for a couple of minutes steady, which is really a pretty minimum requirement. So my advice would be to start there, that he's certified, that he uses the program, goes through the syllabus, and, and then try to find uh, pilots in the area who make recommendations because, you know, they'll know who has a good recommendation, who has a good reputation, rather. Uh, and that's at least as good information. Yeah, uh, I know that my instructor said um, he wants to see me reverse inflate, have it above my head, uh, walk back 10 feet, turn around, walk 10 feet, turn around, walk backwards 10 feet, then turn around and walk another 10 feet, all with maintaining my wing directly above my head with complete control before he put me in the air for my first solo. What do you think about that? Awesome. Is that that's, that's absolutely awesome takeoff shouldn't be an accident exactly um but uh, anything else about that because we got another question coming up oh uh, boy well that's all i can think of i'm sure there is plenty because it's an important question but, uh, and but that's all i can think of the most but that's why but that's why you got a book out there and um yeah. like i said make sure yeah, oh and also footflyer.com i've got a lot dedicated to this question uh, what am I looking for in an instructor? Uh, the whole of chapter one is intended for someone getting into the sport. And what do I look for in an instructor? So y'all out there, go to Footflyer and uh, check out the website. Matter of fact, um, there's actually something on here. I don't know if it's true or not. It says... Jeff, your last review was three years ago. Any plans on more foot flyer reviews? Well, I would love to do more reviews. The problem, of course, is uh, I've got myself in a new business startup trying to change the world in another arena of aviation. Uh, I'll, I'll go into that in April uh, sometime. But right now, that is consuming an immense amount of time. So... Reviews, to do well, a review takes a while. I mean, I'm a big fan of objective data. You want to know how fast it is, how well it turns. Uh, 
how it inflates. And that's hard to do unless you go out and you have a wing for a week. Uh, I found, I remember reviewing one wing that I really liked, but I never flew it in a calm wind. Uh, I, I flew it a couple times and there was always at least a couple mile an hour wind. There's some wings out there, including this one, where if it's dead calm, it weirds out. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Weirds out. I got one of those. So that's the scientific terminology is weirds out? Weirds out. Uh, yeah. You'll find that there in Scientific American if you look hard <laughs> enough. I hear you. All right. Sounds good. Uh, Doug, um, he, he's uh, a friend that came up and flew with me yesterday. We did some geocaching, um, or as Anthony Vela calls it, paracaching. So I've been doing that with some friends. And he came up from Louisiana, and he has a question for you. Um, when it's bumpy or windy or turbulent, when do you use trims set out to neutral or beyond or keep them all the way in? And when do you use tip stirring? Well, I'm going to defer to my, my previous statement about uh, it's really important to read the wings manual. And I know that sounds like a cop-out, but here's why it's so important. On one wing, the manufacturer has found that they feel that the best way to penetrate turbulence is trims out, tip steer only. You're basically giving up handling for uh, to let the wing's own reflex stability handle it. Another manufacturer will say, no, your best bet is to pull the trims in and use main brakes and use active flying. But then you have to say, well, what is active flying and am I good at it? Because there are, that's a specific answer. It's not just holding weight on your brakes. It's stopping or reducing, never, never stopping. Don't think that you have to you know, completely stop it. But it's reducing the amount of motion that the wing does. Uh, and, and the problem is that's harder than it sounds. How do you know you can do it? Because you can fly a straight line in light turbulence at two feet or, or in that area. And it's the kind of thing you have to practice. You have to be able to roll out of turns with no overroll where you, you know, you're rolling out of the turn and you bring it level without the wing going beyond level. That's common in a paramotor. If you just let off the brakes, the wing will roll out of the turn and roll a little bit into a turn in the other direction, and then the other direction, back and forth in decreasing amounts. You, to be an active flyer, you need to have mastered that to the point where you're not doing those roll oscillations anymore. Pitch oscillations. You know how you're handling pitch oscillations if you're in light turbulence at two feet? You know how you can tell? You're not hitting the ground. Right, because hitting the ground is pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, you know, you won't you won't get hurt. So my recommendation is uh, assume that you're probably not doing active flying very well. Um, unless you're, you've practiced this kind of thing where in at least light turbulence, and you never want to take on strong turbulence because, well, it's strong turbulence and there's a decent chance it'll have its way with you. But in light turbulence... Put yourself in a situation where you need to keep the wing essentially overhead using the least amount of brake pressure uh, and throttle input to keep it go, uh, keep your body more or less underneath it and the wing more or less above you. So 
that is, I know, again, kind of a long answer to this question, but it's why when they say uh, do active piloting, well, you probably ought to know what that is because the term gets tossed around and people don't really appreciate what it takes to do it because it takes a while to get good at it. Exactly, and also the bump t uh, bump tolerance and how bumpy things are, because you got a you have a um, a scale for bump, and bump goes from one to ten, I believe, and yeah. one to four is uh, can you know is a, aggressively getting bumpier and bumpier without a wing tip collapse or a wing collapse. Five is when it collapses in the bump. So. I believe that what Doug and I experience is probably a four because I don't think that our, you know, we, there wasn't any collapse. So where is that bump tolerance or the scale when people talk about how bumpy things are? It's on your um, foot flyer, right? Yeah, it's on foot flyer and it tries to be objective. It says an A wing uncorrected. So in other words, you're flying with your brakes up at the pulleys. You're not doing anything. And if you're in five-level turbulence, you're getting little tip collapses on that thing. Wow. That's nasty air. Wow. I don't want any part of that air because it's no fun. Not worried about it. I would fly in it. I would feel comfortable flying in it. Uh, but it's nasty air, and it's just no fun. Then a seven is where you're taking a 50% or more collapse on that beginner wing. That's really dangerous air. So that's how the scale is built. And then 8, 9, 10 are just, you know, worsening versions of that. Yeah. yeah, they're to the point of uncontrollability, where 10 is, it doesn't matter what you're doing with those little breaks. You're, you're going to get turned into laundry. Wow. And, and about what wind um, speed is that, that? Oh, boy, that is all over the map. Uh, I've been on beaches frequently where it's blowing 20. And... No problem if you've practiced high wind handling mm -hmm. because, uh, for one thing, just to get the wing to inflate in that condition, you know, without inflating before you're ready, you've got to build up to that. Um, and you've got to have a situation where you can get dragged and you're not going to get strained through a fence or something. Uh, so on a beach, in many conditions, yeah, you, you go in 20 mile an hour and it's fine. Uh, because it's all because it's all laminar wind. It's more or less laminar, yeah. And if you're in a area where there's big trees around it, I live on a little airport where there's a runway. It's a grass strip, north south grass strip. If I have 12 mile an hour out of the west, I don't want to be in that air because it's curling over those trees and the buildings, and it is all shades of nasty. So it, it depends quite a bit on the location. If you're out in the middle of a field, the St. John's River is a uh, common flying site around here in Florida, and there's a bunch of flat land. You can pretty safely fly there. If you're, if you're a PPG three-level guy, you'd be fine flying there in a 15-mile-an-hour wind. The, the strongest laminar wind that I have taken off in is about 10 miles an hour. And to me, that was right at my tippy-top tolerance as of right now as a newbie pilot. I can't imagine trying to take off into anything 
higher than that. I had to pull trims out to neutral just to make sure it didn't overfly and, and collapse on me. Um, took like three steps and I was up in the air. But uh, honestly, I, I can't imagine trying to take off in 20 mile an hour wind on the beach. That, that sounds scary, which kind of leads wow. us up to the next uh, question is, what is your scariest flying moment? Oh, that's easy. Uh, Panama. We were in the country of Panama. I had already, it was really windy. Um, one of the guys, an experienced pilot, couldn't even get airborne. Um, and we were, there were uh, four of us, then there were three of us, but uh, I had already begged off of this flight. And then I got talked into it. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, the uh, one of the guys handed me the phone and let me talk to the local pilot. It's like, oh, yeah, we, we get this condition a lot, but it's fine at the LZ. All right. And I had already said, you know what, I'm going to ride in the truck. Ride this one out. Um, so we get there, and it was blowing really hard. We, one of the guys on the radio said, uh, "This looks like a bad idea." Silence. Whoa. Yeah. So we get on the other side of this mountain, and all hell broke loose. Uh, and that wing was in places where no wing should be. Uh, we each took a different tact on how to handle this. Um, one of the guys went down uh, really low. The wind was off, angling offshore. Uh, had he gone down, had he had a motor failure, he, we never would really have even found the remains. Wow. Because um, he went down to about 20 feet and came inland that way. Oh, yeah. Had he taken a collapse down there, it, was, it just it wouldn't have happened. Um, I went and I, I tried. I did some spirals. The problem was we couldn't get down. What? We were in a, a form of standing wave, uh, severe turbulence, standing wave. And I would do a spiral, which spirals are, I hate spirals. You know, I don't deal well with high Gs. Uh, and I would lose, say, 500 feet. It wasn't a nose over spiral, but it was really steep. And I came out of that spiral, uh, and I was going up 700 feet a minute again wow. in big ears. Yeah, big ears just pissed it off. <laughs> so uh, I then, and I don't do beelines because I'm not used to them enough. Um, so after a few of those, I headed downwind, just went with it to get farther away from the, the mountain. And uh, I just fought it and fought it and fought it until I landed. And that was the scariest moment in aviation ever. Wow. Um, what, what kind of advice would you give uh, pilots to make sure that they don't fall into what you just went through in Panama? Well, the first is pretty obvious. If, if you see a pretty obvious risk, uh, just say no and stick with your guns. Um, another one is just because everybody did succeed and flew successfully that day doesn't mean it was safe. They may have just barely made it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I write this column for um, Powered Sports Flying, and, and that column is written firmly to me. 
I got a question. Are you still there? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I got a question about apps. So I know that, um, you know, you got to check winds aloft and you got to be careful about wind shear and different gradients of uh, wind. Um, so what apps do you use or websites to check the winds aloft or check the weather before you go on a flight? And how often do you check them before you actually take off? I'll usually, I try to do an official briefing, but that's partly because I'm an airline pilot and if something happens, I'd rather have it be on record that I did a briefing before I flew. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, as far as, you know, that, that airplane type briefing, it's good for making sure there's no TFRs, temporary flight restrictions. But for the winds, I use this thing, Windy TY, that's real helpful. Um, and otherwise, I don't use much. I've, I've observed that I'm sure there are some great apps and someone else is going to have some better apps than, than I have. But I've observed that it's pretty easy for, for little miniature jet streams to form in places where nobody predicts they'll be. Sometimes they're predicted, but at maybe you, you've probably seen this. I don't know where you take off and it's calm. You just did a forward launch. You ran your ass off. You, you get airborne and it's like, oh, look at that. I'm not moving much. You climb up a little bit more. Well, look at that. I'm moving backwards. Perfectly smooth. But it, you know you fly hands off at 20 miles an hour, and you're going backwards very slowly. But you're still going backwards. You know it's 20-plus miles an hour, and you're only 300 feet high. So that happens. And when that stuff hits the ground, yeah, it's going to be a sporty air ball down low. So it's one of those things, if you're going on across country, eh, you may want to go upwind first so you can get back quickly or be willing to just land early gotcha have you heard of the uh, ryan carlton um website for hot air ballooners i have not heard of that one but ballooning i have seen another ballooning website and thought oh yeah this would be good so you probably have a better one than i do i also look at ventu sky app it's an app that shows the different levels and which way the winds are blowing uh one of the things that scares the crap out of me is wind shear and seeing my my wing just collapse and me fall to the ground uh, there's one video out there that the guy's just flying around having a good time hits this wind shear and it just drops him and that scares the crap out of me he went through and in, in his description and uh, said that he if he would have looked at winds aloft it said at three or five hundred feet there was a um, a crosswind that was like 20 miles an hour in in the different direction and he thinks that he hit that um is that one of the things that you look for uh, or look for when you do your briefing is winds aloft and different shearing effects mm, if it's bad enough that you're going to have that kind of shearing you usually get uh, gust in the uh, terminal area forecast so later in the day It'll, you'll see it show gusty in the terminal area forecast. So that's what I look at. Okay. Uh, another observation is that if it's going to be bumpy, I'm, 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 th and I'm not, I'm not saying that he was wrong at all. Uh, I'm just saying that in general, I feel it pretty early on, and usually, it's because I push it. In other words, I don't take the hint that oh, this is some kind of bad air that wasn't predicted. I should land right away. Uh, my observation about most of those types of accidents is that people had a pretty good clue that the air was bad. 
and they continued. So I've actually never seen a situation where he got swatted out of calm air. Not saying it can't happen, but it's pretty rare. And usually there was some indication prior to the incident because it's actually pretty hard to collapse these wings. Uh, it takes a fair amount, you know, unless you're pushing some things. Unless you're probably in the reflex or pushing bar or something because, he, I mean, his video was, you know, relatively long before it happened and he was just tooling around it looked like a nice day um no oscillations no no craziness and then all of a sudden whoosh the wing just just collapsed i think that he had the chase cam too so we saw a couple of different views which reminds interesting to see yeah send me the link absolutely um what do you think about chase cams cool you know i when i was doing instructional videos um I found they weren't steady enough for my use, but they provide cool footage just for entertainment and and would also work for training in the right use. Uh, so I have not used one regularly. I, I tried it. Uh, but when I was doing a lot of filming, I was building training videos. So I had the camera mounted out to the side or on the cage where you could clearly see the hands, and I was looking for an action and reaction. You do this, then this happens, and I want to show it to you. So I came up with a camera mount where the camera was looking straight down. I wanted to show um, torque, the torque effects, and oscillation, oscillation and yaw. Because there's some, some weird effects of that where uh, many wings will oscillate, and they oscillate in, in yaw. Is it is it dangerous to mount um, cameras on your wing from your different um, connections uh, on, on your lines? Absolutely. Uh, if you let that camera catch on something, that could go very poorly. So, but uh, like all of these things that we choose, we'll choose a risk and benefit. Mm -hmm. And as long as you're not flying in areas where that's a possibility, oh, the risk is minimal. There is some more risk because if the wing, if you do take a collapse, well, yeah, okay, that could get in the way. So it's, it comes in degrees. If you're taking off and flying in relatively benign conditions where a, uh, a big fold is unlikely, risk is minimal. Okay. Yeah, I guess it's all risk and reward. As uh, long as you understand all the risks and all the rewards uh, when you're flying, I, I guess that's good. And that's another reason why, you know, I believe that having instructors and having buddies to fly with and uh, other people around and people that you can talk to, other groups and things like that on online, uh, possibly even fly-ins, which leaves us with, I believe, our last question. Uh, do you know of any good uh, fly-in websites, um, you know, to, to be able to hit these, these fly-ins that, that are going around? Well, um, we try to get all of them on USPPA. They don't have to be USPPA-specific in any kind. but uh, So we try to get them all on USPPA.org. There's a calendar there where if we know about it and they allow, like we'll ask, and there are sometimes clients where, yeah, we don't really want to publicize it that broadly. Okay. Um, but most of them are okay with it, and we'll put it up on there. Are there any dangers about these fly-ins and a bunch of pilots that uh, you would um, recommend uh, to newbie pilots uh, going to one of these fly-ins? 
Well, they're obviously a uh, high, high target area for mid-airs. So they're, they're, if you're smart about it, I don't think it's a big deal. You know, I wouldn't be inclined to do one of my first few flights there. <laughs> you know, unless it's a wide open area. I'm going to be at the um, Palm Bay Fly-In. I forget, they renamed it Florida Fun Fest. And that's a big enough open area that it probably doesn't matter. But when you're a beginner, there's a lot going on. And so it may be, may be better not to do a lot of flying at the event, but eh. It's good to, to meet people, I suppose. And... Oh, it's awesome to go, absolutely, and meet people. And, you know, if you go to an event like the Palm Bay one, well, you can go away from the main activity and and fly there. But when, when it's crowded like that, you're just adding a new layer of complexity that you're less able to handle well. Especially if you're a new pilot just trying That's to... That's what I mean, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, one last question. How did you get into flying PPG, and how long have you been flying? I got a fateful call from a friend in 1999 who said, Hey, Jeff, have you ever seen this powered paraglider? Uh, what? And he told me a little bit about it. Uh, he asked, you want, you want to go in with me on one of these things? And, and I already had other flying things. And I told him, well, let me look at it. I, I don't know anything about it. I, I kind of envisioned it being like uh, the guy who flew over L.A. in a lawn chair. I didn't, I didn't figure there was that much control over it. But when I found out how much control there was, I just went nutso, nutso. This was the way I always dreamed about flying. Uh, so, yeah, I went out and got training. That was in 1999. I think it was March. And uh, the rest, oh, my God, I went nuts. I couldn't stop. I would have... I would leave the house so I would get out before visitors could show up. It was definitely out of control. So you got up early and flew, late and flew, and flew every chance that you possibly had. I lived on an airport. That so I would awesome. still go somewhere else frequently to fly. But the fact that I could run into the air with this craft and go to the anywhere of my whims was utterly compelling. That, that is awesome. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many people are looking into the PPG. Man, we've crested over an hour, and I totally, totally appreciate your time uh, coming on the podcast. Um, if you have, like, two seconds, I'm sure that everybody is just waiting to hear this. Airspace. Um, I know I listened to another podcast. I think you're on Anthony Vela's, and uh, he asked you re really quick to sum up the um, airspace and you did it so quickly I'm like could you do that for me G airspace up to 1200 uh, E airspace above that and uh, what would you say like a, a mile of visibility and clear clouds can you go over that real quick I know it's like two minutes out of your time I think you just did it I, I think so too but you say you sell you say it more eloquently than I do oh there's a guarantee I'll screw it up all right well the basics are thankfully really basic. So almost anywhere in the country, you're launching in G airspace, G for ground. You're, you're going up to either 1,200 or 700 feet. You only need a mile and clear clouds. Throw a dart at an airspace chart. It's landing on G airspace, almost certainly. You're standing in G airspace. You need a mile and clear clouds. 
You got that. Right. Then the next thing is above seven or 1200 feet, you need more. You need more cloud clearance. You need more visibility because the airplanes are flying faster. Um, how do you tell the difference on charts? You've got this shaded magenta outline around airports and highly populated areas inside of that shaded magenta outline the the uh g goes up to 700 feet i'm sorry outside of the outline it goes up to 1200 inside of the outline it goes up to 700 and above that above seven or 1200 feet you need three miles visibility and more cloud clearance 500 below uh 2000 at the side and a thousand above that's really about it and that's what I've taken from your DVDs and listening to you on other podcasts is that we only need to worry about two things, you know, G airspace up to 700 or 1200 above that it's 1200 to 18,000 feet. I mean, right. we, we have such an amazing amount of range to go fly. And as long as we stay away from airplanes, we're, we're doing pretty good. Right, exactly. And you need, if you're in a populated area, there's other airspace types that we're not allowed to go into. But, but those are actually pretty small considering the whole of the country. Exactly. Uh, I mean, we have to avoid the congested area of a city, town, or settlement. Well, what does that mean we can't fly over it? Well, it means you can't fly right over it. So if you've got a park, you can fly within the confines of that park. And I've done that in Chicago. It was in Chicago. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So you can pretty much fly anywhere, man. Once again, thank you so much for for being yeah. on this podcast. Uh, this has okay. been absolutely amazing. Uh, Y'all go to um, Foot Flyer, get that DVD that tells you all about airspace and all that. Pick up uh, his book and make sure that you get on the list for a Christmas. Uh, wh what is it? The uh, number six. Number six. Six for Christmas, man. Have an awesome day. I so appreciate it. And you do the same. It's been a pleasure. And thank you out there for listening. This is org. P-A-R-A-T-A-L-K.org. This is for the people, by the people. Do you want to be interviewed? Have you interviewed someone? Or do you want to just tell your story about how you got into PPG? Um, or paragliding. I mean, we, we're all about flex wings or, or anything, even GA, I suppose. If you have a, a good story about general aviation, how you got into it, being a pilot, that's what this is all about. Let me know. You just get up with me. You can email me at ppggrandpa at gmail.com. Check out all my videos that I have out there, which is ppggrandpa.com. Com, and I put it all out there, all before I started to fly and uh, training and, of course, my first, you know, sitting down too soon and smacking my butt and coming in for landing too quick and, and not landing right, turtling. Um, this last one, I didn't check my runway and got into some mud and, and water and kind of did a little crash thing. But the good thing is, is that I don't have to worry about my cage breaking because I have an angel frame. Uh, Andrew Fuller makes the angel frame. He guarantees it. So if you break it, mess it up, he sends you out free pieces, which is awesome. The only stipulation is make sure you get it on film so he can figure out how you broke it and make the frame better. Get up with uh, Andrew Fuller at SkyTap 
skytapparamotors.com and tell him that PPG Grandpa sent you and he will actually take off some money, I think 200 bucks off a complete setup and you never have to worry about frame parts again. I think it's pretty cool. That's why I fly the Angel. I beat the hell out of it and I can still fly. Go to iTunes, please, if you enjoyed this episode and rate us a five star. We're also on Podbean and numerous other places that are supporting the podcast RSS feeds. Have a wonderful day. Thank you again for listening, and we will catch you next time.